The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. The American contribution to 1918 is a lot more to do with the promise of what they're going to be able to do. But guess what? They had a massive learning curve, a much shorter one could claim than the British and French learning curves of two or three years. You could say they're the quick learners, but my goodness, they were making catastrophic mistakes throughout 1918. That was Jonathan Ruffell discussing America in the First World War. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. On Wednesday, the 1st of August, the First World War historical drama Tommies will be returning to BBC Radio 4. The series, which has been running at regular intervals since 2014, tells the story of those at the front line of the conflict at a century's distance. And so the next group of episodes will be exploring the events of August 1918, when the war was turning strongly in favour of the Allies. Jonathan Ruffell is the creator of Tommies, and he spoke to me down the line a little while back about this pivotal moment in the First World War and some of the fascinating stories that he's planning to illuminate in the latest season. Jonathan, so your series has been following British soldiers at a century's distance throughout the First World War. And so by the time we get to August 1918, you know, they've been fighting for four years. What is the mood among the troops then? Some of them were having sweepstakes uh, in the trenches, um, speculating the war could last well into the 1920s. It's actually quite a hard idea for us to grasp today. They really were... They, they couldn't see what the big breakthrough was going to be. Um, they'd kind of tried everything. They didn't think there were any surprises left. And the irony is, is that the attack on the 8th of August 1918 relied on that very thing, that very surprise that 
probably nobody thought could ever happen again. They were able to manoeuvre the two most important units in the Allied armies into the same place, shoulder to shoulder, and were able to make an attack. And that attack was at Amiens. Now, they were the Canadians and the Australians, and the Germans had worked out that wherever the Canadians and Australians stood shoulder to shoulder, that's where the attack would be. So Tommy's, the first two episodes of the series, focus on the two legs of that deception operation. Deception operation they'd borrow major ideas from for the big deception operation that covered for D-Day many years later. Um, First, they had to make it sound, and this is using the signalers, make it sound as if the Canadian army had moved off north near Ypres. And the signalers created this amazing fake army out of all the different signals they sent. And they were clever. They weren't just, you know, the Canadian armies moved north. They were all those little details. They were, um, uh, this battalion's having a sports day. Uh, These casualty clearing stations need more blankets. Those kinds of communications, that texture that told the listening Germans a whole Canadian corps had moved. And then, of course, the second thing was to conceal by wrapping the wheels in straw, by flying bombers up and down the line so the Germans couldn't hear the tanks being brought up to the line. Having followed the deception, they now had to conceal where the Canadians really had gone. And guess what? They really had gone to stand shoulder to shoulder with the Australians to launch this crucial, crucial attack. So the Battle of Amiens, which which you referred to, is one of the the key battles in the war. And this is the point where really the Allies get the upper hand over Germany. And it's actually only a few months till the war's going to have to run. Do these soldiers on the ground, are they aware of the fact that the war has turned in this direction? And if so, how do they kind of respond to this? Well, you correctly identify the the, the the nominal date, which is the 8th of August. But the British soldiers must have felt that things were turning uh, to their advantage because in July they'd had the uh, attack on Hamel by the Australians from which everybody could take uh, a considerable lift. And also, this is a this is a slightly harder point to grasp, which is although the Germans had been remarkably successful in March and April. They'd actually advanced 40 miles. And if, you'd, if you've listened to Tommy's at all, you know that we normally talk about advances in terms of hundreds of yards. The key thing that had happened in March and April is although it had in no way been a British and Allied victory, it hadn't been a defeat. In other words, there was a clear idea uh, in the British Army that the Germans had tried their best They'd thrown everything they'd got. They brought all these divisions over from Russia. They were trying to get a quick victory in before the Americans were able to get into the field in any numbers, and yet they hadn't succeeded. That's a victory brought out of a defeat, not entirely unlike Dunkirk, actually, the idea that... Okay, you can't, as Churchill said in the House of Commons, you know, uh, Dunkirk is not a victory, um, but at least it isn't a defeat. I'm paraphrasing him there, of course. But this this idea that um, sometimes you don't actually have to win, win to have actually achieved a necessary step. It's unbelievable, really, 1918, that the British Army are in this perilous position in the early part of the year, and yet mount, as you say, this victorious attack. Um, and soldiers, their morale must have been rising up and bubbling up before the 8th of August 1918. But on that day, they advance 
uh, certainly the Australians and the Canadians, not so much Third Corps of the British Army, they advance on that day to the order of six, seven, eight miles. And that's that's a powerful blow to have dealt an enemy who must have felt like they couldn't be shifted in a in a trillion years. What insights does the series offer into how the Allies were actually able to achieve victory when there'd been so many years of stalemate? This element of surprise, the idea that you might be able to, with modern deception techniques, tell the Germans one thing, send them one way while you do something else. That's a big change. Surprise back on the battlefield after four years. Then there's what is referred to in military speak as all arms combat. This idea that towards the end of the war, the Allies perfected the notion that an attack is not an artillery barrage and then the infantry go in. It is the infantry going in supported by artillery, machine guns in a support role, uh, Stokes mortars, other light uh, and low-range artillery and grenades, etc., etc., but also supported by tanks, supported by aeroplanes, supported by the intelligence war. What you have to kind of think of here is the war starts with a, with a guy with a rifle. And by the end of the war in 1918, this, this victory, he, that, that soldier is supported by all these other different integrated arms. Now, there's a school of, of current thought which says don't pin too much on this idea because towards the uh, end of this period, we're talking about September into October into November, the attrition rate of tanks and planes is such that there's a bit more of a reversion back to the what you might call the traditional artillery um, supporting infantry style of attack. But they're also not pursuing the, the massive frontal assaults of, of 1916, the Battle of the Somme, say. They're now utilising everything they've learned. They're doing the smaller grab-and-hold operations, things they'd learnt at Messines, things they'd learnt at Cambrai with the tanks. This is, this is a changing war. It, it, it is really quite incredible that in the four years of the First World War, particularly the British Army, went from an essentially agrarian industrial economy with no military backup and an incredibly small standing army to this huge integrated operation. And it's in that that I feel is the victory in 1918. And of course, a German army uh, being necessarily massively depleted as it goes along. And clearly another major thing that's happening around this time in the First World War is the arrival of large numbers of American troops on the Western Front. So what impact did this have on the British forces? I think the first, um, and Vera Britton mentions this effect that the Americans had, was literally their physicality. Marching through the streets of the rear areas uh, were tall, fit, well, extremely healthy young American men. And at this time, the British and French armies were drawing on their very youngest troops and also what you what used to be termed crocs, pretty old guys, you know, guys who'd been who'd been effectively um, uh, injured or been sent back to Britain and had no anticipation they would ever come out again, were all going back into the army. You know, it was a massive need for men. And then these smooth-looking guys turn up and just like the Second World War, you know, they're oversexed, overpaid and over here. And that must have been a massive boost. And Vera Britton talks about that, you know, a surge of confidence. But the Americans in themselves 
set themselves a bit of a trap because they were so determined to be an independent corps. There's nothing wrong with that. The Canadians were doing it. The Australians were striving to do it. They didn't want to get sucked into the French and British armies. But the truth was is they knew nothing about uh, how to fight trench warfare, so they needed to listen to the British and the French. Even more slightly evilly, there was a problem with the notion that they felt they knew better than the British and the French and were determined to fight open warfare. The man and his rifle, he's like a, like a guy on the American frontier, he'll get out there and he'll sharpshoot his way to victory. Well, anybody who'd, who'd seen any um, combat in the trenches could tell that was suicidal. And the Americans took tremendous losses in 1918, such that had the war gone on much later than November, they would have to have been withdrawn from the line. Gary Sheffield's extremely good on this. The American contribution to 1918 is a lot more to do with the promise of what they're going to be able to do. But guess what? They had a massive learning curve, uh, much shorter, one could claim, than the British and French learning curves of two or three years, which I've alluded to. You could say they're the quick learners, but my goodness, they were making catastrophic mistakes throughout 1918. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. Clearly the war was being fought in many places beyond the Western Front and I understand that one of the episodes in this new series of Tommy's will be exploring an incident that actually takes place as part of the Russian Civil War. Could you please tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, this is an extraordinary notion. Um, the only thing I knew about trains in Russia was probably those images from the Dr. Zhivago movie, which, of course, is a World War I movie and a Russian Civil War movie. Um, Stronikov, played by Tom Courtney, he bats around uh, Siberia or wherever on his, um, on his special armoured train. And here was a battle in which the 19th Punjabis sent into, into Transcaspia because there was this persistent fear that the Reds, uh, pre Previously the Russians, but now the Red Russians, would sweep down into India and, and steal away the empire's jewel in its crown. So um, the 19th Punjabis are up there with elements of the 26th Cavalry, and they're fighting to support a duel between two armoured trains. It really is a quite extraordinary notion. So that's really interesting in itself. So, I mean, I, I have no idea how this would work. Logistically, what happens? How do two armoured trains fight a duel? Don't worry, this is a this is a head scratcher. <laughs> this is this is not immediately apparent how this might work. Uh, perhaps I can put it to you like this: Imagine just a single railway line. So the one thing you mustn't do, however you're going to fight, you mustn't actually destroy that line. You might remove a section from it and replace it with a, with a rail you're carrying on your train, but you mustn't actually destroy the line because that's the way you're going to get out of here. Okay, and that applies, it's a desert. Um, that applies to both sides. So they devised this form of combat because there were artillery, there was guns on these trains, apart from the armour, of course, we call them armoured trains, and essentially you would move your train forward until such time as you became within range of the artillery on the other train. 
At that point, you'd stop and you effectively become the artillery, as we know, from a sort of frozen Western Front. The thing to then realise is behind each armoured train involved now in an artillery duel are support trains. Effectively, they're like a frigate uh, defending a troop ship at sea. Uh, and so the guys get out of that troop train, and then they have effectively a infantry battle with exactly the same aims as an infantry battle normally has, which is, can you defeat the infantry and can you take the enemy guns? Well, in this case, can you take the enemy's armoured train? So if you can get your head round the idea that the two trains chug towards each other, stop with when they're within range, back off a little, and then it's the infantry that takes on the battle. Then you've got the right kind of idea to understand what you quite rightly say is a, is a really strange notion. Looking at it more generally, one thing that we discussed recently when we had Maggie Andrews, who consults on Home Front, the Radio 4, another Radio 4 First World War drama, was this, was this idea of sanitising history and about whether we should historical drama should be amended to suit you know modern sensibilities and i'd be interested in your view of that how much has tommy's been edited so that a modern listener won't find it too upsetting or shocking i think there's two lines to that and i've and we've given this a, a tremendous amount of thought the first is uh, when you use the word sanitize, um, is uh, is the notion sanitization because of the sheer appallingness of the violence. And I don't think that Tommy's has shied away from that. Um, we know our audience is highly intelligent. We know they know war is hell. So if we do use extreme violence, people die in appalling ways in Tommy's, um, as you'll, you'll hear a pilot die in a quite appalling way in the episode on the 8th of August. We use that as a bridge to discussing why war continues, even though it's its main engine room is violence. So I don't think we shy away from that. Uh, one of the ways we do it, though, is we don't open every show with that. I think it's completely unfair on the afternoon drama audience who might not be aware that today's episode is an episode of Tommy's and therefore um, they turn on and they hear somebody die in a horrible way. That's just that's just not playing fair. So we would certainly practice a very simple idea, which is the violence comes later in the episode. And that's not shying away from anything. That's just being polite to your audience. You know, I'm not lumping us in with Shakespeare, but King Lear uh, puts out the, you know, the eyes get put out of Gloucester. Uh, but I bet you, I don't know, for certain, but I bet you that's in Act 3. That's not the opening image of King Lear. The other strand, I think, of sanitizations, and, and a very, very interesting one indeed, which is the notion that the prevailing attitudes, particularly about race and class, come out of these uh, books, uh, memoirs and war diaries. Uh, they come out pretty harsh and uh, very harsh to our modern sensibilities. Now, now we have to get our knees dirty with this. Obviously, uh, home front's a soap opera, so it's a slightly different thing. But we have to engage with a combat situation where the language can sometimes be extremely fruity. We have to be very careful about that. And we also have to engage with the idea that, for example, uh, Pat Cumber is writing an episode for us of Tommy's, the American one, and we are focusing on the 93rd Division, who are black US soldiers. And some of the language used between those soldiers, let alone used at them, as it were, can be very, very abrasive in the, on the modern ear. And similarly, apart from we don't certainly launch 
punch into it. It's not sentence one of the drama. We are also very fortunate we have the wonderful Indra Varma doing our commentator, and she is able to assist us in, in reassuring the audience. Obliquely, of course, she reassures the actors and us, the creative team, um, that if we are using abrasive uh, language, it is to make the point that those were attitudes held at that time. Again, on quite a general point, you've now worked on Tommy's for over four years. Over that time, has it changed in any way the way you approach historical drama or the way you think historical drama should be made? I've actually been working on uh, Tommy's for nine years um, because this kind of project needs quite a build-up um, before you can sell it to the BBC. Um, and during that period, I've had the small and large-scale version of what you're referring to. I've certainly come in from the office after a day uh, reading War Diaries. Um, my wife detects I'm incredibly depressed because all I've read about all day is violent death. And that's a truth which can sometimes be extraordinarily grinding. You could ask, you could reasonably argue, of course, if you're making a drama about the First World War, you know, what did you expect? Um, but I have never felt there was a reason for us not to pursue our idea that the truth is beauty and is well worth defending for the very simplest reason to start off with, I suppose, that millions of men and women died in the First World War. And if you can't be bothered to get it right, why are you even bothering to make it at all? Um, that's always been one of our, our linchpins is the idea that a real time drama uh, could lend a different sort of truth to these sorts of stories because our instinct on Tommy's is always if you feel like you're going to have to make up some corner of this story, get back into the detail, get back into the war diaries, you will find, and this has happened over and over again, that a true story will always illustrate what you're trying to do better than that little shortcut that you were thinking of. And I think our best episodes are when we've rigorously searched into the truth, when we thought it, you know, we couldn't find a way of dramatising what we were doing, and our shakier episodes is when, due to pressure of time, we've had to grab possibly the first idea rather than the historical idea. Just one final question, Jonathan. For anybody who's listening to this tranche of Tommy's focusing on August 1918, are there any books that you've read through, for your research that you'd really recommend people should, should seek out if they found this really interesting? Yes, I can do that without even blinking. Um, the best book I've ever read about the First World War is called The War the Infantry Knew. Uh, it's by, his name's Captain Dunn. He has some long initials, but you'll find it. It's uh, easy on eBay, and I think um, there's even a move to have it reprinted. Um, it's a superb book. He was in the same battalion as... Robert Graves and Siegfried Sassoon. And this book was a sort of response in the late 30s to the, the War is Hell memoirs. They'd quite rightly written from their own experience earlier on. But it has a wonderful atmosphere of, first and foremost, an atmosphere of truth. And uh, secondly, it has an atmosphere of being determined to name names and say what actually goes wrong at um, the infantry level. And in that respect, I often say this to the cast members of Tommy's, one of the genius strokes of uh, the American uh, drama, The Wire, um, was its eagerness to show us how uh, the prosecution of the, uh, uh, the police war on drugs in the States is at one level a tactical one where you're trying to actually catch guys doing stuff. On another, it's how well are you supported, how good's the kit, what's the political will behind what you're doing, um, and who are the people who are actually through their own aims and ambitions holding you back. And the war the infantry knew is absolutely superb on this. He, he pulls no punches at all, and the sense 
sense of place and the sense of identification you get is like no other book. Quick word of warning, though, first 100 pages, he hasn't got into his style. This was a book printed so 500 people could read it. And um, we now read it and think, this is all a bit lumpy and when's he going to get going? If you do choose to get hold of this book, The War the Infantry New by Captain Dunn, you will need to just weave your way through the first 100 pages before it gets into gear. That was Jonathan Ruffle. Tommy's will be returning on Wednesday the 1st of August on BBC Radio 4 at 2.15pm. And it will be available on BBC iPlayer Radio after that, where you can also catch some previous episodes of the series. And meanwhile, don't forget that you can read Our First World War each month in BBC History magazine. Well, that's about all for today, but please do listen in on Thursday when we'll be talking about British Special Forces with Rory Cormack. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.